Psalm 43. Vindicate me, God, and champion my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from the deceitful and unjust person, for you are the God of my refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of my enemy's oppression? Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. Then I will come to the altar of God, to God my greatest joy. I will praise you with the lyre, God my God. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated as we think together about really what is a difficult difficult reality, and it's a reality that most, if not all of us, will experience at some point in our journey from here to heaven, and that is the reality of depression. It's a very hard thing to be depressed. The old mystics described depression as the dark night of the soul. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, likened his own bouts of depression to being locked in a prison without a key, unable to get out. Biblical counselor Ed Welch characterized depression this way. He wrote, depression feels terrifying. Your world is dark, heavy, painful. Some days you think that physical pain might be easier to endure. At least the pain would be localized. Instead, depression goes to your very soul, corrupting everything in its path. Dead but walking is one way to describe it. You feel numb, but you still remember when you actually felt something. Somehow, that makes it harder to bear. As a pastor, I've counseled several of you as you've walked through dark nights of the soul, as you've battled against depression in your own lives. And others of you this morning are dealing with depression even now. And it's very easy for you to feel isolated as you look around and you wonder if anyone else understands or if anyone else is experiencing the same thing. And we want to encourage you to know this morning that you are not alone And we're praying this morning that this time in God's word would be in a special way, a comfort and an encouragement to your soul, and that God would meet you in a special way as we look at Psalm 43 together this morning. In a fallen world, there are many causes of depression. It's such a, one of the things that makes it hard to think about and even preach on is the fact of how complex the topic is. Because there are so many different manifestations of depression, there's also so many different root causes of depression. And it can be difficult at times to understand why it is that our soul is so downcast. Now, we can't list all of the possible reasons for depression, but but some people are simply temperamentally more predisposed to depression than others. Just their personalities, you know, they look at the, the glass and to them it seems half empty. Well, to many other people, it seems half full. Sometimes the cause of depression is physical. So things like thyroid dysfunction or hormonal imbalances or chronic illness or even the burden of growing old can lead us into depression. Sometimes the roots of depression are spiritual in nature. So there may be unconfessed sin in our lives. You know that lie that you can have me and Jesus? It can be our secret. And you keep that sin in your life and you don't confess it, but over time you find out that your joy is completely sapped away and you wonder all of a sudden, why am I so lifeless spiritually? Well, that can be one of the causes of depression, particularly spiritual depression. It might also be a misunderstanding of sanctification. Whereas we we get saved and we think, well, this is great. Now I'm going to serve the Lord so well. And then we discover, wait, I still struggle an awful lot with sin. What's wrong with me? 
And Satan comes in and says, there's something wrong with you. And we don't understand the process of sanctification. And so we find ourselves quite overwhelmed by our sin. Sometimes the cause of depression is sufferings from the past, uh, particularly for those who have been abused physically or verbally or sexually. The, the memory of the trauma that they have endured predisposes them to seasons of depression as they live. And, and of course, sometimes the root cause of depression in a person's life is the suffering of the present. Current trials, whether that's something like a job loss or marital turmoil or, or dealing with rebellious children, whatever it is, those difficult circumstances, they leave us feeling quite low. Beyond that, sometimes in this life, we are attacked by others. And it's a hard thing to be attacked. And when we are attacked by others, that can also lead us into depression. And that is really what was facing the psalmist. That's kind of the root cause of the psalmist's depression here in Psalm 43. He was being attacked. He was being opposed by others. He was being oppressed. And as a result of the burden of that, his soul is, his soul is weighed down and he's distressed and he's despairing. And so he cries out to help for God. But I want you to notice as you look at this chapter, this psalm, that the psalmist does more than cry out for help. The psalmist also fights. And that's one of the most important things we can do when we face depression in our own lives is we can fight for hope. And the psalmist shows us how to do that. Psalm 43 is a part of the second book of the Psalms. So those, those would be the Psalms from Psalm 42 to Psalm 72. There's some debate about the Psalm. Uh, some evangelical, perhaps many evangelical commentators, believe that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 actually used to be one Psalm, but then over time they were separated. So now it seems like we have two Psalms in our Bible. That's very possible. Uh, those Psalms are combined in some of the ancient manuscripts. Both of the Psalms share the same refrain, that, that important refrain, why my soul are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. And it's also true that Psalm 43 has no title above it, whereas almost all of the Psalms in the second book of Psalms, except for Psalm 71, have titles. And so it is very possible that we should be reading these Psalms together. I think, though, that it's best to understand that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are separate psalms, but they've been written by the same author. So that explains something. That explains why most of the ancient manuscripts actually combined them. You know, if they had been combined at the beginning and they got separated somehow, they're so related in so many ways, it seems like they would be kept together. It also explains why they use the same refrain. You see, the same authors use the same refrain because both Psalms are dealing with the same topic, which is depression. Who wrote Psalm 43? Well, we see this in the title above Psalm 42, the sons of Korah. In all likelihood, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are written by the same author, the sons of Korah. Now, who are they? Well, Korah was a Levite who in the wilderness, when the people of Israel are traveling from Egypt to the promised land, he rebelled against Moses along with others, and he died as a result of his rebellion against the Lord in the wilderness. But Numbers 26 tells us that the sons of Korah did not die. And in time, they actually found a place of service to God in the temple in Jerusalem, and they served the Lord in particular through songs of praise, as they wrote songs of praise and led the people of Israel to this God of redemption, this God of grace, this God who spared their ancestors. Now, as we said in Psalm 43, the psalmist is discouraged. He is despairing. He is facing the attacks and oppressions of enemies. 
But notice again that he doesn't just wallow in his misery. He fights for hope in God. And as he fights, we see how we can fight. And that's a helpful thing. Three points from Psalm 43 this morning. First, we're going to see the psalmist request in verses 1 to 3. The psalmist request, verses 1 to 3. Second, we're going to see the psalmist vow in verse 4. And third, we're going to see the psalmist fight in verse 5. Let's look at that first point together, the psalmist request. When you're struggling with depression, the question that will recur in your mind over and over and over is why? Why do I feel this way? Why does it seem to be that I'm the only one who is suffering? Why doesn't God seem to care about my pain? If God is good, why doesn't he take away my pain? Now, if you've ever heard thoughts like that, you're not alone. Actually, 3,000 years ago, the psalmist was asking precisely the same kind of questions in these verses, in verses 1 to 3. Look, Look at this passage. Look how he speaks. Vindicate me, God, and champion my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from the deceitful and unjust person, for you are the God of my refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. In these three verses, the psalmist really makes two requests of God. Verse 1, he requests that the Lord would vindicate him and would rescue him from his enemies. In verse 3, he asks the Lord to be with him. Uh, he wants the presence of the Lord in his life. He wants the Lord to be faithful to him as he faced these enemies who were confronting him. But then in verse 2, you really see the heart of the psalmist. It kind of overflows as, as you hear the, the, the depth and the burden of the suffering that he's experiencing as he cries out to God and asks, Why? Why do I have to experience this? Why am I living through what I'm living through? Let's look at this passage verse by verse. Verse one, the psalmist asked the Lord to vindicate and rescue him. Vindicate me, God. Champion my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from the deceitful and unjust person. The Hebrew that's translated vindicate there, it literally means judge. And what the psalmist is asking the Lord to do is to to judge between him and his enemies. Who's in the right here? I'm being wrongly attacked is what he's saying. The psalmist was absolutely confident that he was in the right. And so he boldly goes to the Lord and he asked the Lord for judgment, for vindication. He knew that the Lord could rescue him. Now in verse one, the psalmist seems confident, right? He cries out for vindication. He seems confident there. But again, when you get to verse two, you see how much that confidence was matched by an inner struggle, by inward turmoil. He says, for you are the God of my refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? The word refuge there really refers to a a mountain fortress. God, you're my fortress. You have a covenantal obligation to care for me. So why am I suffering so much? And why does it feel like you have abandoned me? Why does it feel like you are nowhere to be found in my life? Psalmist is struggling. He doesn't feel protected. Uh, We don't know exactly how the psalmist's enemies were oppressing him. We do know precisely how he felt about it. As he cries out to God in despair and asks the Lord why. He's weighed down. He feels like he's been abandoned. And he uses that question, why? Well, brothers and sisters, if you've ever been depressed, you're familiar with these emotions. 
You know what it is to feel like you have been abandoned by the one who is your refuge and who is your mountain fortress. You know truth about God, right? You know that God is a stronghold. You know that God has promised to help you, but somehow you don't feel any of that. All you feel is a void within and sorrow and despair. Perhaps you feel that way this morning. If you do, I want to give you a word of encouragement and then make one observation before we move on. Here's the encouragement. It is okay to ask God why. That's okay. That seems to be a very natural response to that kind of suffering, is to want to go to God and ask him why, because after all, God does know. Now, some people say we should never question God. Now, if they mean that we should never angrily question God, they're right. Uh, To be angry at God is as sinful as it is foolish. After all, God is good and we're not. God knows all things and we err all the time. So it's not right for us to go and angrily question God and place him, as C.S. Lewis put it, in the dock. It's not right for us to treat God as if he's on trial based on how we are feeling. But that does not mean we cannot ask God questions. Do you notice what the psalmist is doing in verse 2? What's he doing? He's coming to the Lord and he's asking the Lord questions. And the Lord doesn't rebuke him. Instead, actually, all throughout the psalms, as you read it, you see the psalmist comes again and again and again, and he asks God honest questions. And God is not afraid of honest questions. He already knows how we feel. He already knows our situation. We can come to him in moments of pain and despair and loss and struggle, and we can ask him why as we face the various trials that we will experience in this life. But even as we ask God why, we need to remember that God does not always give us the answer. After 30 chapters, more or less, of basically asking God why, Job never ultimately gets the answer as to why he had lost everything. And as to why he sat there in the dirt, scraping away the wounds. God doesn't give him the answer, does he? No, instead, God confronts Job with the reality that God is God and that Job is not God. And that was enough for Job. He saw God as he was. And even his suffering in that moment seemed seemed to make sense in the sense that he could trust in God who knows all things. God is God. We're not God. When we ask God why, we need to do so humbly. We need to be willing to wait. We need to be willing not to know until we get to heaven, and perhaps not ever. It's an observation. God will never reject his people. Why can we do that? Why can we do that? Because we know this is true. God will never reject his people. That means whatever you're feeling this morning, if you belong to Jesus, you have not been rejected. I do think this is is one of the hardest aspects of depression for those who belong to Jesus, is that they feel like God has abandoned them. The light of his presence isn't there anymore. There's just darkness there when they can remember times when it seemed like they were so close to the Lord and they wonder, what's happened? God's presence is missing from their lives. This is what the psalmist is feeling in verse 2. Why have you rejected me? And we can feel like God has abandoned us. But when we feel that way, brothers and sisters, we need to remember the gospel. How does the gospel help us? Well, it reminds us that God the Father actually abandoned and rejected the Son, Jesus, on the cross. Why? So that we would not be abandoned, but so that we would be accepted so that we will become the sons and daughters of God. 
on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why did he cry out like that? Because for the first time in all eternity, the father had turned his back on the son. And their perfect intimacy was broken for the first time. And why did that happen? It happened so that God, the father, would not have to turn his back on us. But so that we would be brought in to as close of a relationship. And you can read about that in John 17. It's a remarkable truth that we would be loved with the very love of God. That we would be counted the sons and daughters of God. No, God God has not abandoned us. We know that because of the gospel. You know, the Bible does contain bad news. Not everyone belongs to God. Not everyone has a relationship with God. Actually, the Bible says all of us have been born sinful and separated from God. So that by nature, we don't want to live for him. We don't love him. We won't want to follow his word. Instead, we're born with the desire to do what we want to do. And that starts very, very early as we cry out my and mine. And we're willing to hit others to get our way. And we're willing to lie to get our own way. And no one has to sit us down and say, hey, this is how you lie when you want to get your way. No, we do that naturally. Why? Because sin has turned us in on ourselves. That's what this separation from God ultimately looks like. It's taking God off the throne of the universe and placing myself there on the throne of the universe and living as if I'm the king. That's what sin is in its nature. It's this prideful rebellion against God. And it's a serious thing because it separates from God and God is the source of life. Apart from him, there is no life. And if you're separated from him this morning, you have physical life, but you do not have spiritual life. And that's what you need. You need eternal life. How can you receive eternal life? You receive eternal life in Jesus. Oh, when we read Hebrews 9 earlier and we talk about Christ as the great and final sacrifice, what's all of that about? It's about this, that the Son of God came into this world to live a perfect life, the kind of life we should have lived, but we failed to live. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of his life. He loved his neighbor as himself every single time. Why? Because you and I failed to do that. But then his mission, his mission, this is the glory of the gospel, is that he came to lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice, indeed, as the great and final sacrifice, so that no more sacrifices are needed, because on the cross, Jesus paid it all. And on the cross, he is rejected by the Father. Why? So that we could be accepted. And friend, if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, know that God loves you. He desires a relationship with you. He's done everything that's necessary. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ this morning, and you will be brought into a a wonderful and eternal life-giving relationship with God. You're surrounded by people who are desperately imperfect. Oh, but Jesus has loved us, and he's welcomed us. And we belong to God. And we would love to talk with you about how he's taken sinful, broken people and made us his sons and daughters. We'd love to talk with you about that. Depressed brother or sister, there's such a good word for you here. It means that that voice you're hearing that's telling you that God has abandoned you, that's a lying voice. That's not true. Your emotions speak the language of truth. But it is not true that God has abandoned you. No, if you belong to God, if you are a child of God, if Christ is your Savior, God will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He's with you even now by His Spirit. So don't believe that lying voice. 
It's just, just kind of the initial way to begin to fight. Don't listen to the lie, but begin to listen to the truth. And trust God. This is a big part of it. Again, we talk about the importance of trusting God. Trust God to bring back the sense of his presence in your life in his good time. Because he will do that. Now in verse 3, the psalmist makes a second request. He asks the Lord to be with him and to be faithful to him as he faces his enemies. Look at verse 3. It says, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. The, the light there, I believe, is the, the psalmist wanted the light of God's presence. Uh, the word truth there really is a word that speaks of truthfulness or faithfulness. The, the psalmist wanted to experience God's faithfulness. Really what the psalmist wanted most especially is for the Lord to deliver him so that the Lord would bring him again to a place of worship, a place of God's dwelling so that he could worship the Lord probably in the temple in Jerusalem and offer praise and thanks to God, the God who has saved him. And I believe that there's a very good word here for you this morning if you are facing depression in your life. As we've been saying, for those who are depressed, Satan comes along and tells you that God has abandoned you. Therefore, it will do you no good to try to gather with God and his people at church. It will do you no good to do that, so you should stay home. More than that, depression saps our strength, so we have nothing within us that makes us want to do anything much less go to church. And so what looks more appealing quite often is just staying home, staying in isolation and, and, and sleeping. Well, friend, if you have felt those emotions, if you felt those temptations, I want to encourage you to look at the example of the psalmist. Even in the midst of his suffering, he wanted to be with God. He wanted to be worshiping God with the people of God. He feels, and again, that's an important word, he feels like God has abandoned him but he still longs to be with God and the people of God. It's a good model. In the suffering depression, what we need is not isolation. What we need is God. I hope you know that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. I hope you know that he wants you isolated so that he can attack you. Don't let him. Seek opportunity to be with God and with the people of God. Trust God for grace and gather with his people. Well, looking at verse 1 to 3, the psalmist cried out to God for help, asked the Lord to vindicate him. A second point now, the psalmist vowed. Look with me at verse 4. The psalmist continues, Then I will come to the altar of God, to God my greatest joy. I will praise you with the lyre, God my God. In verse 4, the psalmist really vows that if the Lord will deliver him, then he will worship him. He will praise God through sacrifice and worship. Where will he do that? He'll do that at the altar. Where's the altar? Well, it's the place where sacrifices are made. What will he do it with? He'll do it with the lyre, which was an instrument of praise for the people of Israel as they worshiped God. The psalmist again wanted to worship God, and he vowed that he would do that if the Lord rescued him. But I don't want us just to pass over verse 4 without noticing how God-centered the psalmist is. Uh, in the English, you see it four times. In the Hebrew, it's actually five times that the psalmist uses the name of God in this one verse. He refers to God as his greatest joy. Now, there's a sermon right there. God is his greatest joy. Really, that God is the God of joy. Literally, God is the God of joy. And he refers to God as my God. And the idea is that there's possession there. 
There's intimacy there. There's, there's relationship there in the way that he thinks about God. Even though he's suffering and feels abandoned by God, the psalmist loves God, rejoices in God, vows to worship God. Now, one application for us as we look at this, as we look at the psalmist and his heart towards God here, living as we do on this side of the cross, our joy in God should be much fuller than the psalmist's. Why? Because the psalmist knew about the altar, but we know about the cross. The psalmist knew about sacrifices and a coming Messiah. We know the name Jesus. Uh, The psalmist thought about this great hope that the Lord had for him and his people in the future. Now we know that God in his goodness is bringing together a plan of restoring all things in Christ. And we are a part of this. We have been welcomed in. Why? Because Christ was crucified for us. And so as we think about this this great sacrifice, as we think about what it is that God has done for us in Christ, it should stir up in us a surpassing joy in God and a desire to serve Him and worship Him. That greater knowledge, that greater light should increase our joy in God. When verse 4, the psalmist makes this vow. Now in verse 5, we see a third point. The psalmist fight. I recently watched a movie entitled Greater. Uh, the movie chronicles the, the life of a football player named Brandon Bullsworth, who was killed in a car accident 11 days after being drafted by the Indianapolis Colts to play for him. When he walked on, he was a walk-on. When he walked on at the uh, University of Arkansas, no one expected him to do anything. No one thought he'd go anywhere. But you see, he had a great passion for football. He was a strong Christian and he lived out all four years on the campus in such a way that he led people to Christ and he excelled in football. That passion drove him and God was honored by his passion. It's a really good movie. Now here's my question. What if you don't have any passion? What if there's no inner desire in you at all? What if there's no feeling inside of you at all? You know, that's where depressed Christians are, you know, and that's difficult for us. If you're not depressed, it's hard for us because we can't see how they feel, and yet they feel that way. How can you honor God when you don't feel anything? In verse 5, you see one way to honor God when you don't feel anything is to fight for hope in God. And that's what the psalmist does in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. In verses 1 to 3, who is the psalmist speaking to? He's speaking to God. He's crying out to God for help. In verse 4, who's the psalmist speaking to? He's talking to God again. He's making a vow to God in verse 4. In verse 5, something changes though. Now the psalmist notice he's no longer speaking to God. Now who's he speaking to? All of a sudden, he's now speaking to himself. Now he's addressing himself. Now he's, he's challenging himself. Really, he's depressed, but he's not content to stay there. He's not content to lay down. He is determined to fight. And in particular, he's determined to fight for hope in God. So let's look at verse 5. I want us to see three aspects of the psalmist fight for hope in God so that we can learn how we can fight for hope in God when we face the seasons of depression that we will face as we go through this world. The first aspect of the fight is that the psalmist asks faith-filled questions. 
Look at the way the psalmist begins to take himself in hand. He asks these two questions here. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Now, looking at these questions, I don't think the psalmist is just kind of looking into his heart, trying to understand the cause of his depression. He understands the cause of his depression. He's told us about the oppression of the enemy. So what is he asking in these questions? I think he's really asking himself this question, why should I be depressed? Why should I be depressed? Uh, The psalmist is taking himself in hand here. He's calling himself to account. Really, he's reminding himself of the blessings he has of belonging to God. He knows that God is God. And as we'll see, he's about to challenge himself to do something. He's about to challenge himself to put his hope in God. Now, that's where we must begin the fight for hope in the face of depression. We have to stop listening to the lies of the enemy. And we have to stop listening to the ongoing, never-ending inner dialogue And instead, we must begin to speak truth to ourselves, calling ourselves to account so that we begin to think in the way the Bible tells us to think. And in particular, we want to orient our lives away from how I feel to God as he is. Away from my own experience, which is so dark, to God who is faithful, whose word is true, Who's able to save? That's what the psalmist is doing here. We cannot just wallow in grief. I know that's hard. We can't do it. When we feel despair, we must take ourselves in hand. Why? Because, friend, there is no bottom to the pit. If you just stay in the pit, you will go lower and lower and lower. There is no bottom. So something has to change. He takes himself in hand. He starts asking faithful questions, questions that we can ask. Like, why should I be downcast when the eternal God is mine? Why should I be depressed when all the treasures of heaven are my inheritance? Why should I despair when Christ has paid the price for all of my sins and all of my failures? Why should my soul mourn within me when the very spirit of God dwells in my heart? Faith-filled questions that look at God and his word and calls us to think about what it is that we have received. Now, these these sort of faith-filled questions may not immediately relieve the emotions or the feelings that we are experiencing, but they do do something. They point us towards hope. They point us towards God who's reliable. They point us towards truth that can lead us up and out of the depression. That's what they do. They do more than that. They also help us focus on the blessings that we have received in Christ rather than focus exclusively on the suffering and loss that we feel in our circumstances. And that's a good thing because, again, if you stare at your emotional wounds all day long, you will be miserable. Oh, brother or sister, you have to look somewhere else. You have to look up. You've got to look up. If we look at at the blessings, if we look at our God, God can help us grow in joyful gratitude for what we've received in Christ. That's the first aspect, faithful questions. The second aspect, the psalmist preaches to himself. Look at what he does next. He doesn't stop with questions. Now he turns and now he addresses his soul directly. He says, put your hope in God, hope in God, trust in him, trust in him in every circumstance, trust in him despite what you feel. What is he doing? He's no longer listening to himself. Now he is preaching to himself. Now he is directing his soul towards truth and towards 
hope, and we must do the same thing. We must point ourselves towards hope. Why should we hope in God? Because God is the God of awesome power. I just think the Old Testament is given so that we see over and over the faithfulness of God. He's the, the God who delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Yeah, he's the God who delivered David from all of his enemies. He's the God that, ju- that brought Daniel up from the lion's pit. That God is able to rescue us by his great power from the season of depression that we are in. We hope in God because God is able. When nothing else is able, God is able. We should hope in God because God is trustworthy. It would do us no good if God was able to do all of those things, but had no inclination to do them. That's not the God we worship. The God we worship is the one who says, I will, I will complete the good work that I've begun in you. That means you will make it to heaven. God will see it happen. He will bring you there. And so you can trust in him. Oh, the glory of the hope that we have in Jesus this morning. We're going to be in heaven someday. Do you realize that? We're in a church right now. We're going to know each other forever and ever and ever in a new heavens and a new earth. What glory is there in that? That's our hope this morning. It's hard for us to say amen at Christ Fellowship, I know, but that's (laughs) amen, right? (laughs) You know? Okay. We're going to work on that. Aspect number three. The psalmist embraces hope-filled expectation. Look at the end of verse 5. For I will still praise him, my salvation and my God. The ESV translates this, I will again praise him. I think that's the idea. I think there's hope-filled expectation. Here, the psalmist has asked faith-filled questions. He's preached himself hope in God. And now he's embracing this faith-filled expectation that he will once again praise God as he so longs and desires to do. He will experience the joy of God's presence again. He will worship God again, whether it's in this life or for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth, he will worship God. And so once again, what's he doing? He's preaching truth to himself. He's confronting himself with the glory of what it means to be a Christian, the glory of what it means to have a savior, the glory of what it means to have an eternal hope that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for us in Christ Jesus. That's the third aspect. The psalmist embraces a faith-filled hope. And brother or sister, when you're discouraged, you can do the same. So what should we do when we're depressed? We should take ourselves in hand. We should ask faith-filled questions. We should preach to ourselves. We should preach hope to ourselves. And we should embrace a faith-filled expectation of the future glory that will be ours in Christ Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is how we fight. And God's grace is able to strengthen us so that we fight well. And listen, it's a, it's a good fight. It's a heroic fight. If you're dying on the inside and you're willing to step out of yourself and love someone else, that's God's grace. That's heroic. And praise God for the way he does that in us. It is a hard thing to be depressed. The causes of depression are varied and complex, but we have seen this morning that when we face seasons of depression, we are not without hope. We have God. Regardless of how we feel, God is with us. Regardless of how we feel, we have a glorious inheritance 
ahead of us. So let's not give in. And let's not give up. And let's keep taking the next step and the next step towards glory until we get there. And we will. Let's pray.